Welcome to Tomorrow's Tech Today, bringing you the latest in technology, talent and transformational change. With me, your host, Professor Sally Eaves. Hi everyone, and a very warm welcome to today's special feature, all about cybersecurity alongside areas like data protection and resiliency too. I think really reflecting the scale, the scope, indeed the sophistication of growing security threats across the globe, but also a range of different challenges and kind of vectors of change, if you will, and things that can be as diverse as geopolitical factors, managing talent gaps, but also evolving behaviours and expectations too, whether you're a consumer, an employee, or an ecosystem partner alike. So. I think the place to go now will be to drill into all of those details. And to do that, I'm delighted to be joined by Dowd Wilkinson, who is Senior Product Manager at Veritas. Welcome, Dowd. Hey, thanks, Sally. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, me too. Absolutely. And I know as well, when we had a, had a chat before, you're a man of many hats, Dowd. So maybe a great place to start would be to share a little bit more with the audience about your role at Veritas, but also the depth of experience you've had around that too. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. So uh, I started with Veritas in 1999. So going back quite a few uh, years and have been here for the most part, uh, except for one year I took off and went to IBM. And that was a really interesting challenge uh, uh, there also, but uh, came back to uh, work with Veritas, especially around the, the area of ransomware. So my, my background primarily is uh, was in uh, technical sales uh, as, a, as an SE, and then I evolved over time and uh, focused primarily on uh, telecommunications providers. So some of the largest communications providers in the world. And of course, they're highly uh, structured, very organized, and have a lot of regulatory issues that they have to deal with, uh, as well as, uh, uh, you know, especially these days with all of the issues associated with uh, malware and, and ransomware being a, a sub part of that. So it it was a great experience. And of course, we did our 10 years at Symantec. So that was really a, a, an eye opener to understand more and more about some of the security challenges that many of our customers uh, are experiencing on a day to day basis. So uh, with Veritas, I've, I've been uh, very privileged to focus on this area and talk to customers about this uh, quite a bit. Love that. And the point you mentioned there about governance as well, absolutely, that could be right up there with one of those challenge factors, particularly over different geographical areas as well. Something certainly adding to complexity as well as being much needed, but the navigating through that as well, I'm sure it'll be something we can come back to a little bit later on as well. So brilliant setup. Thank you, Dale. I love that. So you mentioned ransomware already really naturally in that conversation. So I'd love to start with looking at that enterprise organization perspective and the steps that can be taken to help negate the cyber attack risk that we're seeing, particularly as you you mentioned about ransomware, number one threat pretty much across every country in the globe at the moment. So if we could drill into that, maybe even explore, you know, what things people are leaving out at the moment, what's being overlooked? Yeah, sure. So um, traditionally in the past, backup and recovery vendors were really offering the idea of you get your backup backed up as fast as you can. It was a speeds and feeds kind of talk that you had with your customers. 
And then about four years ago, maybe three, the start of the pandemic, where people had to accelerate their digital uh, experiences, their cloud experiences, we found that more and more people were, were certainly suffering from ransomware. And so I don't go in and I don't talk to a customer who that is a number one issue in their environment. And so... We have steps to uh, combat ransomware. Veritas has come up with what we call our six steps to address ransomware. But clearly, it's just not a uh, a backup and recovery issue. It's it's an issue spread across the enterprise. And what we found is that backup is just another component of uh, associated with ransomware. So today, people are targeting malware uh, purveyors are targeting the backup infrastructure for the most part. They understand that that is your last line of defense in terms of of uh, defending yourself against ransomware. But you have to also have in place good cybersecurity practices, a well-educated workforce and individuals, and additionally take advantage of some of the newer technology and just the good steps that the the various governmental agencies across the globe are putting out things like making sure you're taking advantage of the uh, 321 rule you know three copies of your data on two different medias and in an additional location and some people would even add and say it's 3211 make sure one of those copies is immutable but uh, defense in depth is still one of the primary ways that you prevent ransomware and malware from invading your system. But what we found is that a lot of customers, for all the best steps that they've taken, still get hit with malware. And we don't we talk about this somewhat abstractly. Security professionals today are deflecting a tremendous amount of intrusion into their environment. They're doing a fabulous job. But by the same token, if something gets in, you want to make sure that you minimize the impact of that. And you can do that in a number of different ways, maybe through network segmentation, taking advantage of actually making sure that the the, the golden copy of your data, your backup data, takes advantage of some of the newer AI technologies, as well as malware scanning, making sure that you run tests against that. So ransomware is a real problem, but there are steps you can take to minimize it and then make sure that you can recover. And for our customers, recover at scale. You have to be able to recover at scale. Uh, for we We today protect some of the largest customers in a variety of industries. And these are just not one server, two servers. These are tens of thousands of, of virtual machines and servers in very, very complicated uh, environments. And it's, 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 a, it's a challenge and not all recovery technology techniques all of the data that's necessary. Sometimes you have to do a bulk restore. Sometimes you have to do a bare metal restore. You may have to do many different kinds of, of recovery. And so uh, we we at Veritas look on that as, as an, uh, an option, an opportunity to meet our customer demands for in a very demanding type of environment. 
I totally agree. And I think you know, going back to kind of areas that are overlooked as well, a few things sprung to mind as you were talking about that there. I think one of them would be about stimulation. So really kind of walking through you know, what do you do if X situation happens in a particular cybersecurity threat? Has everyone in the organization really had the opportunity to experience what that looks like? You know, not just from a you know defense from a security department point of view, but every single role in the organization. Mm-hmm. Communications is one great example of that too. Well, yeah, I think that's a hugely significant one that really helps to kind of build that trust, but also you know, that shared responsibility culture that we're all looking for too. Yeah. And we, we also see that one of the things we like to talk about is you, you have to illuminate your data. You have to illuminate the organization. You have to be very transparent in, in, internally. There has been in the past, and there still is the case, that there's a lot of shadow IT out there. And there's a challenge associated with that because if you're not if you're not making sure that you you are uh, have visibility to all of those assets and you're not putting them into your backup scheme or to your security scheme overall, that's a real problem. And and today we find that in, in many cases still about 35% of the data is still dark. People, they don't have a handle on it. And so it's a very uh, challenging kind of thing to, to overcome. But ransomware is insidious. It, it'll find those opportunities. It's it's very sophisticated form malware, and they you know they they make sure that they go and find those things. So we we believe that it, 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 being very transparent and illuminating your data is really very very important. So everybody's on the same page. You can't have shadow IT out there. The enterprise is at risk if you do. Absolutely. I think, you know, as much as complexity comes up so often as kind of kind of number one that kind of thematic that links challenges together right now, I would say visibility and integration are are right up there as the pillars alongside it. So I couldn't agree more strongly. And I I love your point there about the different elements around malware, too, because one other thing I've seen as well is just the innovation. So collaboration by the bad guys, basically how bad actors are coming together (laughs) and actually reimagining older security threats. So like Emotech, for example, is a malware delivery mechanism. Effectively, yeah. it's brought back to life and is more sophisticated than it ever was, brought by bad actor collaboration. It's kind of like almost a chameleon now uh, of cybersecurity threats. So the dynamism around this space is, is absolutely huge right now. Yeah, yeah. And and so it's it's a, it's a challenging environment. We have some tools and uh, customers are taking more and more advantage of AI in terms of and machine learning in terms of preventing malware from invading their environment. We also take advantage of those those tools to try and check for malware on ingest into the backup environment. And AI is getting more and more uh, sophisticated. So we we have this concept of autonomous data management. Autonomous data management really is sort of an outgrowth of uh, what what I like to call is uh, I think Gartner coined it some years ago is uh, uh, generative AI. Actually, having AI that makes really good decisions for the environment. And the idea there is that we have uh, automatic tools today. So we scan for malware or scan on ingest for for malware uh, using uh, AI. And then when we find something, it kicks off a malware scan, for example, something along those lines. 
but we want to take it to the next step. We want it to be autonomous. So the software actually learns and processes through that to make sure not only are you providing the right security credentials and the right security requirements for a given workload or application, but also make sure that you are taking advantage of all the security fundamentals around that to make sure that environment is secure. So in looking forward, uh, AI is really going to be one of the biggest aspects moving forward on how to not only be efficient in terms of your resiliency going forward, but also in terms of preventing malware intrusion into your environment. Absolutely agree. And I think supporting that as well, kind of next area I was going to explore is kind of what underpins these newer technologies to help drive that success too. And I'll throw in a startup of 10, which would be, for example, investment in AI ops as well. So really getting the very best out of that and ensuring that we get more you know, AI, AI models that are out of kind of pre-production into main production. I also I think that really does support that process and particularly bringing different perspectives together. And we always have the challenge that we have AI ethics and bias that's embedded in data. Yeah. A lot of biases are implicit and the more diverse teams we have, and I think AI ops done well is a great example of that. And from different areas of the business too, like engineering as an example, I think that's a great way and also links into cultural change too. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a challenging type of environment and, uh, you know, it's how you manage that, the, the, the natural bias or the bias that is, is a result of, of some of the uh, engineering teams that, that just naturally happen today. As, as technology becomes more inclusive and as we bring more and more people under the technology tent, you know, we talk about things like mentoring and I know we'll, possibly talk about that a little bit later but the idea that uh, that I think what you were expressing is is that the the bias sort of starts to go away as we bring more and more people into the technology tent whether that's developers product managers whoever and uh that is really something that that I think is fantastic you know the more people we could bring in and expose to technology it also makes sure that there's a, a balance across the, especially the AI type of, of technology moving forward. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I've seen some great initiatives as well, looking at, for example, AI ops and neurodiversity. So really looking at the fullest spectrum of what mm -hmm. DEI really means. So it's fantastic. And everything you look at, you know, whether it's personal experience or the research that backs all of this up as well, everybody knows that when you bring these different experiences, backgrounds, diversity in its fullest form together, you get the best results, the creativity, the satisfaction, and you reduce yeah. the risk of implicit bias too. So yeah, it's super, super important. I couldn't agree more strongly. So I'm really excited about where that's heading. And also the advance of you know, different change management processes as well to support this innovation. Again, you've got to have the right partnership in how you deliver those changes too. So you know, things like CICD or continuous integration, continuous deployment, I think it's brilliant to you know, have those iterative, smaller um, changes that allow you to be in a faster to market, make agile changes if you need to. And I think, again, it's one of those things that challenges a narrative. Actually, more smaller, more frequent changes tends to reduce risk rather than increase it. So I've got my old change manager hat on there for a minute. But I think that's really important as well as another those underpinning pillars, so to speak, that supports the technology change. It's all about that culture, process and skills alignment. Too. I'll, I'll definitely come back to skills later. I think that deserves a little yeah. section on its own. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, autonomous. Uh, you know, we 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 tagline the idea is that you have to make sure you still have 
uh, human oversight on this because AI can get away from you pretty fast, especially uh, uh, there's a trust factor associated with that, especially in, in, in my business, in the backup and recovery. You want to make sure that data is secure, it's immutable, it's protected, but having the software actually make those decisions based on input from individuals is 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 really important. Absolutely, it's, it really is like the actualization of active intelligence, isn't it? And that mm -hmm. that complementary partnership, exactly right. I, I couldn't agree more strongly. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, one area I wanted to drill into um, was about specific areas where we're seeing again looking at some of the trends that are happening. You know, what technologies are increasing in popularity and adoption? One of those would be Kubernetes. And, and yeah. obviously other container technologies as well. And obviously yeah. they present unique challenges in the context we're describing there. I wonder if we can yeah. unpack that a little bit too, because that's coming up a lot in conversations at the moment. I think it could be a really valuable perspective. So we've seen a lot of customers go into Kubernetes or go into the, they go into the cloud. They have they have a, a vision, you know, our, our studies indicate that about 80% of our customers have a cloud first kind of uh, view of the world. They want to move off-prem, uh, less and less of a hybrid type of environment, go into the cloud and take advantage of the features the cloud the cloud offers. So obviously the ability to uh, scale up on demand, reduce those assets, uh, it becomes cost effective, it becomes very efficient. It's a challenge for some customers. Uh, you know, you lift and shift and you just set the, the data in the cloud. There's still an expectation that maybe your costs will re be reduced, but but there's it it doesn't really transition well. So so hence we have, you know, microservices and and uh, things like Docker containers all managed as as a you know Kubernetes as a a orchestration layer over the top of that. What we found is that a lot of customers uh, invest in that. It can be challenging. It's difficult to manage multiple clouds multiple clusters, designated users, policies, communications between nodes. It can sometimes be very complex to install. We've had a lot of customers go that way and say, eh, it's not scaling the way we want it to, which is, which is a problem for very large types of environments. It is moving forward. And I think that containers and microservices and Kubernetes are really the way to go for, for many customers, especially initiating new applications in the cloud. It is going to take advantage of all the features that the cloud uh, offers, especially elasticity. I mean, the, the you need to spin up another pod, you spin up another pod, you grow it, you reduce it, it's very good. We've taken the step that um, for us, we support Kubernetes in the cloud. Customers still need to back up their data, whether it's running on-prem in the cloud or running in a containerized type of environment. And so we approached it as a, a native uh, solution. So we back up Kubernetes natively. So there's lots of different versions of Kubernetes out there. There's Tanzu, there's OpenShift, there's... AKS, EKS, you know, all of these different solutions out there. 
We found that what we wanted to do was make sure that in a native format, we can actually take advantage of that. And what does that give people? It also gives them mobility because if you're not tied to a particular version. So if you want to move that app to something else, we can still move right along with you and make sure that that data is being backed up and it was recoverable. So Kubernetes is another target workload for Veritas. We just approached it in a, what we think is a very efficient methodology, especially given the uh, left of center DevOps development that's part of Agile these days. So more and more we're seeing is that developers are owning the responsibility for a specific application, and they really feel comfortable on different types of platforms. And so they're actually uh, uh, dictating in many cases what platform they use, say, with, for, for Kubernetes. And then, of course, there is the issue of acquisition. So you're bringing in more and more customers. Uh, you know, uh, enterprises are very inquisitive. They are acquiring technology all the time or uh, uh, solutions all the time. And they're trying to integrate that into their environment. So Kubernetes, uh, from our perspective, we can transfer it very easily from one platform to another using our technology. So it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Of that, I think you unpack the different benefits of that so so clearly as well, and particularly that grow as you do. I think is resonating so much with people at the moment too. So I'll come back to a different element of that later on because it links into another area as well, I think very, very nicely. But also brought into, into, into thought, managing this complexity, you, you described in different ways about how to, how to address that already in our chat today. One other developing area is kind of looking at kind of what's coming next, what's coming down the road, which could be the new vector of change. One of them would be around the compliance area. You know, I mentioned at the top, it's an area where obviously you know, compliance regulation does a very important job, but there's a lot of differences. And I, I looked up something only, only a couple of weeks ago, and it was looking at a kind of a particular subset of legislation around privacy compliance. There was kind of like a thousand different iterations of it across different geographical boundaries. So again, tech can play a really supportive role in kind of filtering and doing some automatic updates of looking at um, compliance, for example. But I'd love to take your take on this and what you're seeing from the enterprises you're working with about kind of what they're seeing, what they're expecting with the new regulations coming through, particularly the SEC proposed changes, because there's a big you know, emphasis here on greater disclosure around cyber incidences. And obviously to manage that, there needs to be some changes, not just from a tech point of view, but again, from policy and strategy and culture and obviously skills as well. So what are you seeing there and kind of how are you supporting um, customers to get ahead for these changes to come? Yeah, it's it's a real alphabet soup these it days. I, I, you know, in, in, I started to look up some of those things and I know we've got GDPR, we've got GDPR UK and we have exactly, yes. NIST standards <laughs> and then we have SOX and we have PCI and uh, you know, and just in the banking industry, there's all different kinds. And then you come to the United States and every state has a different privacy, a series of privacy laws. Some are very open, some are, you know, not not very specific. It's some say in California are very specific and all. And, and I think really a lot of them are being derived from GDPR. I think that is really setting the standard and 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 every country will eventually kind of implement many of those requirements over time. It's just going to take a while. We uh, take this whole concept of regulatory requirements very seriously. Of course, we have solutions that that address that specifically, our, uh, our Enterprise Vault uh, technology, our Enterprise Vault Cloud, and, and you've got to deal with 
you know, in many cases, especially as people are making this big migration to the cloud, sovereign issues, you can't leave the border of one country. How do you validate that? How do you verify that? So regulatory requirement is a huge issue. Of course, again, leveraging some AI, some say cognitive AI or something along those lines is really an opportunity to make sure that customers are staying on top of that. And let's face it, the penalties sometimes, financial penalties from regulators, but also we see in some cases that uh, there's penalties associated in, in, in the market. You know, you, you have reputations you have to deal with in many cases. So I think people are starting or, you know, consumers, customers, enterprises are starting to really recognize that their positions on things such as uh climate change, for example, and how that benefits them over time, putting the the whole politics aside associated with that. The reality is there's real dollars that are associated that can be derived from being very aware of how that is, is it, you implement technology today and taking advantage of, uh, uh, say, a reduced carbon footprint. So we, I think that uh, it, it, I just saw a a blurb the other day that the SEC is going to require, uh, there, there's a draft legislation out there to require companies, public companies, to disclose, say, for example, their, their carbon footprint and the impact that has on it. So people who are conscious of that may actually start to buy or not buy those products, that stock, whatever it happens to be. So it gets a little dicey for customers. So we find that um, we have, as I said, technology that allows them to kind of navigate that whole process we're implementing with our technology uh, for that AI also. So we're generating, because there's more and more regulations coming on, we're having to really start to, to generate uh, solutions for our customers on a much faster pace than we've ever had to do in the past. Absolutely. Really interesting points there. So on, on the one hand, we've got you know, the escalating cybersecurity risks and, and the complexity we were talking about there and the legislation and the complexity of that across whether it's states or, or, or countries, etc. But at the same time, we've got the new legislation that's coming in too around ESG, as you were mentioning, that's coming very soon, as you said, the, the draft um, policy in there already. But even you know, informally, there's been a you know, consumer or ecosystem demand to kind of like start presenting this ESG data. So again, again, great role of technology, I think, is making sure that data isn't isolated. So the same way we have dashboard, particularly around you know, cloud computing, there's so much granular information around consumption that's available. But mm. Quite often it's hard to find it. So the more we can integrate that together and make it easy on a kind of day-to-day -day operational level to bring this as one, it is a really big shared value opportunity, I would call it. And you mentioned that as well in terms of the narrative is changing around delivering on sustainability in particular. And organisations, I think, of any size are seeing that, you know, this isn't just about doing the right thing, as important as that is. There's real cost savings to have yep. here. There's buy-in um, and there's shared value. And it will be a driver, I think, of competitive advantage long into the future. You know, organisations that are delivering on this with transparency and also with commitment and accountability, too, is a huge one. Totally agree. Yeah, sure. Sure. Absolutely. And also, on the other hand, as well, so we, we, with all those vectors we were talking about there, 
Also, as you said, the penalties are increasing both from an organisation, reputational, but also individual actors within organisations can face penalties too if you get this wrong. Um, but equally, like for things like you no know, cyber insurance and warranties, there's a lot of discussion there right now in terms of certain things won't be covered potentially very much longer um, or the requirements to get that cover are going to be more and more you know, stringent, shall I say. So on one hand, that's great because it's increasing your protection, hopefully, by doing the right things. But equally, if you're not really looking at the details of that, you might think you're protected and you're not. So I think there's a lot to look at from the cybersecurity insurance and warranty point of view around all this too. Oh my goodness, that that that's such an interesting uh, subject. It's, it's uh, somewhat close to my heart. It's years ago, cyber insurance has been around for a while, but years ago, it was the threats did not seem to be there. But today we look at some of the threats that have happened in the last three or four years where companies have been uh, it's cost them, you know, four hundred million dollars to recover or they've had lost sales of hundreds of millions of dollars. And they've been able to go back to their cyber insurance uh, who underwrote their policy and say, look, we got hit with. Uh, ransomware, and now uh, you've got to pay us, you know. And so, so what you ran into is a really interesting problem. It, it was really sort of a, a, for lack of a better word, kind of a, a, a financial decision: is we can buy cyber insurance for X number of dollars, or we can implement really strong security requirements, firewalls, you know, what have you. And uh, and a lot of companies looked at it and said, well, the cyber insurance will cost us $20 million, but to implement all this security technology on, you know, in our environment may cost us 30. So it's easier to go there. So the cyber insurance people, they're 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 pretty smart. You know, they did the actuaries on it and they they basically came back and said, no, we're going to tighten up this. We're not going to underwrite you unless you have this in place. And more and more, we're seeing a demand for cyber insurance because malware and ransomware is 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 clearly on the rise and everybody is very concerned about it. But by the same token, they're not just going to write a blank check and say, okay, yeah, okay, we'll we'll underwrite you, just give us a bunch of money. They have requirements now that they're putting in place. I actually know people who are in the insurance industry and they say fully 50% of the policies they are writing these days are for cybersecurity insurance. And they have much tighter demands associated with that. And let's face it, I mean, I read an article probably a year and a half ago where the malware was actually targeting the cyber insurance company because they wouldn't underwrite somebody who that they were focusing on for, for a ransomware uh, event. So it's, it's kind of crazy what's going on now, especially, you know, when you start talking about ransomware as a service and things like this. So cyber insurance, very, very important. The days of it being just paying an amount of money and somebody giving you a huge policy without any any requirements around that policy are pretty well 
going away in my opinion well, absolutely i couldn't agree more and, and for, for our listeners and watchers as well recommend having a look at lloyd's of london because they've mm. put a few pieces out of this across this year actually and looking at you know clauses that might need to be removed from insurance policies and even kind of specialities in, in cyber insurance that might need to disappear because the claims ratio etc it, it's unsustainable for the insurance industry too so there's so many elements again it's that dynamism we've been talking about a lot today isn't it and so there's so many vectors yeah. to change to, to try and navigate and manage and optimize yeah 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 unlimited liability is a really huge challenge yes <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely and it kind of brings us a little segue we, we kind of touched on this earlier as well but a lot of what we've been talking about today is this, this holistic kind of integration in a way of using the very best of technology and particularly tech convergence because i think we're definitely in an age of convergence at the moment but alongside these human factors as well so again that culture and processes and skills development etc too so i'd love to just take a moment you know in terms of the autonomous data management we've been talking about as part of our conversation could you just explore a little bit more about the human oversight aspect of that as well because again i think it's really important um, to get that out there because I think sometimes I think there can be misassumptions about that one. I'll give you an example that that we like to use is is you have uh, today for the most part you have people who are doing automatic data management. It's sort of like cruise control in your car. You get into your car, you you turn it on, you start driving down the street, you put your cruise control, and there's some sensors that slow you uh, down, speed you up. If something's there, it, it makes you aware of that. But you're still driving the car. You're still managing it. When we start talking about autonomous data protection, it's more of the concept of the self-driving car. For example, you go in and you put in, you say, I want to go from point A to point B. And then also, I want to go the uh, fastest route, but with no tolls. I don't know. And uh, so the car will figure out a route. You as the individual will approve that route, and then you will be taken there by, by the autonomous vehicle. In the case of data management, the idea is, is very similar. So you set up this whole series of policies that uh, meet a bunch of requirements or a lot of requirements that you might have. And then the software will go out and say, this application is a, 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 a gold application. It needs this level of security. It needs this level of management. It needs this backup, this type of frequently. Oh, by the way, also at month end, for example, it really takes on and maybe a large database and you have to expand more data movers. So you would grow that resource and the software would know about that and grow the resource. And then when it's done, it would reduce that resource and then go on and and take those resources and put it back into your pool of available resources. And so the idea there is that the software will understand how to manage a specific application based on the requirements of that application that you have set up. And then uh, the ability at that point to, to change those and expand those are the human oversight associated with it. But we have customers, for example, who go out and on a, on a on a daily basis, they may implement 50, 100, 200, 250 virtual machines, and they may have to apply a, a certain kind of uh, backup and recovery requirement around those, and they may all be different in some cases. So the autonomous aspect of it is that you understand the nature of that application, the needs of that application, 
and the administration and security teams would be working hand in hand to make sure that it's meeting the requirements of the business and that application. Absolutely, that hand in hand, it's come across literally all, all through our episode, hasn't it, about how to bring these different elements together. I really love that. And you know, as we come to, to kind of the close of the session today, we've been hinting at it all the time about skills, haven't we? So I think we should do a little bit of a piece here about the skills that make a difference in this landscape we've been describing here, and particularly because in cybersecurity, but you know, in other areas too, like testing, also architecture, cloud development as well, to, um, to quite a big degree as well. There's a lot of talent gaps at the moment. And that again is becoming a challenge not just in cybersecurity and analytics and data management but in other verticals as well and it's growing you know in certain sectors as well now what are you seeing there from a Veritas perspective and also your customers too and how they're trying to navigate those gaps yeah it's it's terribly challenging for a lot of our customers and and i've worked with a lot of partners in the past who want to expand their business but quite frankly they can't find the talent necessary so a lot of their customers a lot of consultancies, a lot of partners say, uh, you know, we the customer wants to go to, say, the cloud, wants to implement, uh, uh, for example, Kubernetes. Their application needs to be rewritten and they don't have the in-house talent to do that. So they reach out to, to their partners and their partners literally say, we would love to do this. This is, this is money on the table, but we don't, we cannot find the talent to do this. There's a huge talent gap right now in uh, this sort of migration. And let's face it, the large hyperscalers uh, and, and various other industries are grabbing these people. It's not just limited to what we consider traditional IT. It's in the medical field, in the financial field, in all of these fields. So the need for data scientists, the need for people who can code and manage a type of uh, cloud-based, uh, truly native cloud-based environment has been challenging. And uh, so again, that leads into things like uh, really what we talk about is generative AI. So the, the idea is that you can actually perhaps have your your uh, ML and AI uh, actually start to generate code that makes sense. You still have to have your human oversight of, associated with that, but that's one way some people are trying to overcome uh, some of the skills gap. Now, that generative AI is something a little bit further off, off in the future, or what some people might call cognitive AI, but there's more and more that that's going on, especially in testing envi environments and various others. So my opinion is, is that um, we need to train up more people to on this newer technology, but it's a challenging environment. We've had a lot of customers who have dove into that, and then all of a sudden they find one or two years into the project that it's just not working for them. And I mentioned scalability, and that, that's, a, that's a, a functional problem, but it's really their, their challenges is we can't support this. We can't build it. We don't have the people to do this. So it's, it's, it's a real issue for a lot of customers. And uh, by going down, as I said, the route of autonomous data protection, we take some of that off the table, not all of it, but, but some of that off the table and it, it, it improves the response time so they can free people up to do other things in many cases that they haven't been in the past. It's, it's so, so important. You're absolutely right. I'm seeing good things in terms of an increased focus on, for example, on the job 
upskilling and reskilling opportunity. And for, you know, for example, data literacy, making sure the the ability to kind of skill up in those areas is available for people in non-tech facing roles, because pretty much every role does need to know that, and particularly around security as well. To get that shared responsibility, there has to be a shared level of understanding and access to to learning about these on an everyday basis, you know, not just a you know once a year training course or something like that. So I think democratization of access to training and learning mm-hmm. and reskilling opportunities is, is huge, but also outreach in different ways. It's really interesting because I, I, I was involved in some research that came out in, in April, kind of literally putting it together and then the, like the field work and then analyzing it afterwards. And the top three barriers that came through there, there's a huge, huge piece of research. Top three barriers to digital transformation were all people related and underpinning that was skills. And it wasn't just access to skills, it was actually the skills confidence to apply them too. So again, I think supporting people with like learning skills and how to learn more smartly, you know, because we've all got different ways of doing things. We can be kinetic learners or, or very linear or visual, whatever it might be, they're all equally valid. But sometimes you might not know what works best for you. So I think supporting people with like how to learn better, those smart education kind of coupled with smart technology, I think it's a great way forward as well. So again, I think we can share a few examples of, of that in the show notes as well to share with people. But I think it also brings attention to, and this was only published um, last month, a big AI study um, that ran from the UK, but there was global implications as well. So there was, there was participants across the world, including the US, and it was showing kind of like an intention action gap around AI. So a real recognition of the difference AI can make and quite a lot of investment in AI and automation associated technologies. But the one area that was under underpinning its success was the area there was less investment and that was investment in skills so it really is an important one I'm, I'm glad we've kind of given that a spotlight today yeah yeah I, I think we have a responsibility as you indicated it's it's not only taking classes and taking the courses necessary to understand this it's having the confidence to go ahead and say I can do this so that's where mentoring comes in and and making sure people have a certain level of confidence and they can grow as they uh they they can take on more and it's 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 so interesting it's it's just from my perspective, it's just not about about the salary, or you know, obviously in in the, the tech industry, salaries and things of that nature are are very good. But it's it's all about these learning and making sure that you know uh, social change associated with that learning and different things like this. It's again, as we talked about very early in the, in the in the uh, podcast, is throw the net really wide. And it's going to benefit us all. And I think that's really one of the biggest challenges in the tech industry today is how do you expand the worker base and bring these people under the tent and make sure that they're enabled and mentored and uh, available to really push the technology where we need to go in a responsible way. Absolutely. Just one very tangible example of that as well. So there was an event um, in Zurich called like literally Hack Zurich, funnily enough, um, and it was a 40-hour hackathon. And it was very much about bringing, it was mostly the age group was kind of 16 to 25, but a little bit beyond that too, but just, just for the majority. But it was like using, how can you use coding? How can you use data? And they, they were supplied with things like GoPros and that type of activity. Mm-hmm. How can you use that as a force for good? Um, and there were different challenges set along the way. And it was absolutely incredible. This young talent, how they work together as teams, the agile team formation was brilliant in itself, but it just showed the potential, also just different ways of approaching problems. But as part of that, I was talking with some of the participants and they were explaining what they're looking for differently in organizations today. And again, the onboarding process is part of that. 
there was a big like interest, for example, in, you know, rather than advertise a particular role, why can't I apply to an organization? Why can't I do like a video right here, right now and say, this is what I'm passionate about. These are the, like some of my, like describe your skills yourself, the projects you've done, like really hands-on experiential type things and mm-hmm. kind of almost do it that way and then see where that fit could potentially be, if you see what I mean, rather than the other way around, kind of give, give you my why in two minutes, that type of thing. And it was really, really interesting. One of the organisations involved in that, their head of HR was like monitoring and was a fellow judge like me. And they were like, I'm taking that back. We're going to do something about that. We're going to open up our access and try and reach people in different ways. Because it was all about, you know, they showed their attitude and the mindset and certain things can't be learned, can they, if you know what I mean? And, and attitude, I think, is very much part of that. But that's just a very tangible example of something I think is a great way forward and it helps people learn and you can see all that team building in process and it was just yeah incredible um, and I'll, I'll share a note about that in the show notes too as well because it was an amazing experience and again it was a start of something it wasn't just a hackathon that's like 48 hours long sorry 40 hours long and then it ends it was the beginning of new team formation support mentoring and, and sponsorship etc to bring those ideas to life so yeah it's a great breeding ground I think to, to trial innovation that's very agile and, and to help people learn and grow together and to kind of see where they could fit you know but yeah I think it's really interesting I think that's going to be another kind of dynamic space about how we onboard differently and reach a broader diverse talent pool yeah I think that's so interesting because hackathons that I've been to and I've seen are really about coming up with a a product or a project but it sounds like really is this type of thing is not only that but it's actually trying to find those skills and they may not apply to a particular product or project, but it gives you a chance to spread out and say, wow, we can use those skills in a medical field, or we can use those skills in a financial field. And you're not focused on a specific area and say, this is all I want to do. So it's, it's it sounds really exciting in terms of uh, younger people getting involved in this. And look, let's face it, not everybody can go to a university and get a degree in computer science or electrical engineering or chemical engineering or whatever it is. A lot of people, uh, you know, are approaching this from a... Uh, uh, a very organic way is through as they move through school, and it's incumbent upon our industry uh, whether it's it's the general is to say, wow, we need to take advantage of these folks because they don't learn the same way. They may not have the capacity to go and work for four years in a in an undergraduate degree or something like that. They may have to go to a boot camp, and you know what? At the end of the day. They may turn out as good a quality code as anyone else. I love that. Absolutely. That's brilliant. I'll tell you what I'm going to do if I can. I'm going to throw in one little bonus question in the end. Um, and this is as part of a 365 series. And I, I think I mentioned it to you before, but it's kind of like yeah. visibility of role models in tech and beyond, but also like sharing tech for good stories and just encouraging people to, to get involved, be curious and hopefully more confident about tech and you know careers in cybersecurity and beyond as an example. And I just wondered if you could maybe share a couple of takeaways or advice or, for example, the mentoring you've done with your own daughters and family, for example. Again, I just think it would be a lovely kind of final share for our audience today. Yeah, so so I think it's I think it's incumbent upon us, and and I've done this for a number of years. There's 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 in everybody's town, 
there's always these these clubs that uh, the business leaders, small business leaders, meet at things like uh, the the Optimist Club or the Elks and various other clubs, at least in the United States, that have been around for years. I'm sure there's that's true of the UK, and it's it's always fun to go and speak to these kinds of folks who are they don't really know that much about technology and talk to them, especially around security, making sure they're they're uh, available. So I think we need to do a little bit more outreach as technology uh, individuals and make sure that people understand that there's challenges. Here's some of the, the, the associated technology with those challenges. That's fantastic. And I think if we can, if we could share just a little bit more about the mentoring you've been doing at home too with your daughters, I think it's a lovely story to share as well with some, with some of that advice and, and their success too. Yeah, so so um, it's it's interesting. My my daughters, one of them uh, has a degree in chemical engineering, a, a master's in bioethics, actually, and uh, she's in a PhD program for bioengineering right now. And uh, the other one uh, had his, her degree in chemistry, but she she decided her last year or so that. Uh, she wanted to go into the high tech field. She uh, felt that that was the direction her career should take. And I didn't stand in her way. And and I encouraged her one way or another. You know, I said, either one works for me. I'm just, you know, want you to be happy. But what I found is 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 very interesting is that they both really taken on. Um, it's not only so much about the technology, it's the social aspect of it so you were talking about really the the ai and how uh in the past it was in some ways discriminating against certain individuals or certain groups of individuals and how that's slowly starting to change and we're bringing more and more people who are conscious of that in so my daughters uh one of them just got back from mozambique where she does uh medical research into uh advanced diagnostics for underserved communities and it's very interesting that uh, she's been able to work with, uh, say, cervical cancer, diagnostics, and, and sickle cell. And the other one works for a high-tech company where she works in the the area of, of microservices and uh, Kubernetes, actually. And um, But they seem to also take a particular view of their social responsibilities associated with what they're doing. Obviously, they have a job to do, and they do that job, and they do it very, very well. But they also seem to be extremely conscious of the technology and how it impacts individuals. So uh, I'm, I've, I've always tried to encourage them to look beyond just the idea of either making money or, or salary or things of that nature, and really start to think about, well, you, you've got a unique set of skills. How are you going to change the world? And, 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 and I ask them that all the time. Well, did you change the world today? And so, uh, and, uh, you know, it's kind of like, oh, dad, you know, but, but they do, they do. And they, they collaborate with people who are really interested in changing the world and bringing solutions to underserved communities, as well as improving the betterment of us all so i i i'm you know what that's that's just been my philosophy is that how do we help other people 
life is more than just me. It's uh, really been uh, a unique journey with with two young women as they've moved into um, fields typically in the past that have been strictly dominated by men and how they've been able to adjust and to assert themselves in many ways. That's brilliant. I think visibility matters so much. You're just hearing those stories, how they've been brought to life, you know, it makes a real difference. Like I think, you know, even if one person hears that and thinks, do you know what? I could do that too. And just has that curiosity, a little bit more confidence to look into things and explore and take some of these skills opportunities we've talked about as well. I think that's that's amazing. Yeah, I think visibility is one of the biggest things we have to help encourage people to make break down more boundaries, you know, and break down more boundaries and get into new areas. And, and that's what we need. I think this STEAM approach for me resonates so, so strongly that if you really build holistic skills across science, technology, engineering, arts and mathematics, you've got that agility. Now, we talk about agility a lot today, haven't we? But you need yeah. that personal agility too, to grow wherever new roles, and to carve your own role, carve your own company or career or roles let to be invented, you know? There's great opportunities here. And I think that point you were making about social impact, so many people I speak to, mentor, work with from Gen Z or Gen Z, that purpose is one of the biggest drivers to, to take a course, to take a particular job, to advocate, to buy a product or service. It's an absolutely huge thing. I think they're really much leading the way with purpose-driven you know, leadership for the future. And I'm really excited to see that. And the more yeah. we support that, the better. Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I mean, I it, it is amazing how many decisions are driven by social consciousness these days. And uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. So... <laughs> fantastic well how about that for a deep dive we've gone all the way i've got three well three or four c's in my head at the moment we've talked about cybersecurity and about collaboration we've talked about conscious consumers and partners etc as well it's really really interesting i think it just reflects as well the dynamism of the space we're working in and, and how that facilitation and support across tech and education and culture and skills etc bringing all those together to enable us to, to work through some of these challenges, reflect on them and optimise the opportunities ahead. And as I said before, I really think we're in a point of time here around shared value business where we deliver well, we, we you know enhance business innovation. We can also deliver on you know, community and societal innovation too, particularly in areas like sustainability and inclusion. And so what a fascinating discussion. It's been brilliant. I think we're going to have to come back for a, for a part two, perhaps this time next year we could do a follow-up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think we 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 covered the gamut. We 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 ranged very far from from traditional backup and recovery, but I think it's important that people understand that that uh, cybersecurity does not just start with the security team. Everyone has to get involved in it and make sure that they are participating and protecting those digital assets that are literally the lifeblood of companies these days. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much, Don. It's been a fantastic conversation. I can't wait to do it again. I've got so many examples to share. And as I mentioned at the top as well, for everybody listening and watching at the moment or, or later on, we're going to be sharing some of those examples in the show notes as well. So you can follow up on some of the case studies we've shared. Also find out more around the inclusion series 365 I mentioned as well. And hopefully there's something there to inspire you, your family, your friends, your organisation and get more involved, curious and confident about tech and be better protected when it comes back to cybersecurity and data protection and resiliency too. So thank you so much. Thank you all for watching and listening. And we'll be back with a new episode very soon. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tomorrow's Tech Today. If you enjoy what we're doing, please subscribe to us and leave a review. It really means a lot. 
You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and see more behind the scenes video footage on YouTube. Thanks for listening.